well, friends. Okay, so... You know, I, I was welcoming our friends there. Good man, <laughs> But apparently, you don't think they're all that welcome. Well, um... <laughs> Well, friends, welcome back to Radio Moorpark, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, rating, reviewing, ranking, analyzing, rambling, uh, and so forth. My name is Colm, and joining me, as ever, is... Good old Steve. Good old Steve. Um, a title he's conferred <laughs> on himself. Uh, certainly, you're heading towards the old part at a rapid pace. The good. I surely am, yes. The good very, I'm reversing away today. from at an even more rapid place. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather be good old Steve or bad young Steve? Um, I don't know. I mean, I spent so much time being a goody two-shoes when I was young. I wouldn't mind just being bad old Steve now. Like, that'd be fine. <laughs> okay. I want to be like one of those like wretched like old men who just hangs around bars leering at people. Yeah, you could have like like a really mean animal in your garden that the, the, all the local kids would have like you know scared themselves to to sleep telling stories about old man yeah, Steve's hamster. It'll tear your leg <laughs> off. I'd rather just have like a blobfish like with a wicked frown like in a terrarium or an aquarium <laughs> or something, just like out there like the glares of people and gives them nightmares. That'd be great. Uh, I feel like we've gone off a little off topic, like in, in a record space of time. Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so today we are said, talking about. Hmm? Uh, I said we don't push each other to new limits. You know, we haven't resting on our laurels, <laughs> finding new ways to get off topic with every podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so today, this week we are discussing the We Free Men, the thirtieth of uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. And I think it is his third young adult book that we Second, tackled this time. Uh, so just just Mar um, Morris has been the only. Um, well, technically, Eric is a young adult one as well. Is it? It's. it's or, I mean, it's, it well, was illustrated, but I don't know if it was market like. Oh, was it? Such, yeah. I mean, we we've talked I about this, this is... before, and that like it's as much as anything, it's like how they're sold, and that like you could call equal rights and mort. You know, you could file them under young adult, and maybe they would be if they're released now. But um, I, he was releasing uh, Morrison, We Free Men, in a post Harry Potter world where this stuff was a uh, big business. I think it's interesting that um, like he's he's always described and the young adult ones as I don't know, your copy on mine as like master storyteller Terry Pratchett, which is a very grand sounding <laughs> term. Uh, he's always described as that in the young adult ones, and, and not as the other ones in this. Yeah, that's uh, I, I don't think I have that on my one, but uh, <laughs> interesting that he has that. Um, yes, okay, so the second official uh, young adult book, then The We Free Men, and I suppose we should go over the plot on this one. So, this one's an interesting one in that, um, it does retread some ground here, it reintroduces the Knack McFeagle, which we saw in Lords and Ladies, mm -hmm. which up until our last podcast, was our number one Terry Pratchett book, uh, Discworld book, for the longest time, and follows the adventures of Tiffany Aiken. Oh, no, no, a... so we, we saw the Fiegel in um, Carpe Juggalum. What was it? Oh, yeah. okay. It's, oh, it's, you're right. The, yeah, was, the yeah. elves are in Lords and Ladies. Um, oh, so, yeah, there, right, there's, yeah, a couple yeah. Of, there's a couple of books, I suppose, it's, it's borrowing or following up on here. Hmm. But um, in this one, we are following the adventures of Tiffany Aiken, uh 
I suppose I want I want to be witch. I suppose is the best way to call her at the start of the story, and I guess witch in training by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's kind of a, a witch in training at the end. So yeah. I suppose uh, it starts off where she is working on her farm, uh, looking after her little brother Wentworth, and generally being frustrated with life. I suppose, and I suppose the events kick off when um, some ghastly sea creature pops out of the or river creature just pops out of the lake and she hits it in the head with a frying pan yeah uh, start the book uh, with a bang it? almost literally yeah exactly yeah uh, what was it called again Jenny, Jenny something Green Jenny Green Teeth ah Jenny Green Teeth that was it yeah and in order to get some answers she goes down to the local fair to try and learn a bit more about this unusual creature that she has since tackled yeah, and also the Knack McFeego who she experienced or who she encountered at the river as well and how does that go Colin? Yeah, well at the local they, they have travelling teachers who come into town the, the uh, place where she lives on the chalk is mainly a kind of sheep farming community so they don't have any formal education as such but they'll have, to, as such, but they'll have these teachers coming through who will uh, like teach you certain lessons they're almost set up like a, like a carnival um, and you know you get like a bit of geography for an apple or like um, like uh, <laughs> learn some learn some history for a, a pie or something like that. Frankly, as as someone who um, as we record this in a couple of days, I will be uh, graduating with my my doctorate, and I'm really looking forward to just like living life on the road, going around robbing chickens, <laughs> putting me tent up, saying like you know like learn a bit about sociology and advertising for a Mars bar. <laughs> 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 or whatever I can do, it's 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 an exciting world that awaits me. Um, but so she, she goes down here anyway, and uh, it, it really has that sense of it's it's like a comedic clash between a um, school world and sort of carnival barkers um, style mm. of uh, thing where you know you have these guys outside the tents trying to urge her to come in and uh, do their bit. But she goes to the tent uh, that's marked. I will teach you a lesson. You you won't forget in a hurry. And this tent belongs mm. to uh, Miss Tick, who we've earlier seen, who was watching Tiffany through, um, I think, like, she had magicked some ink or some water to watch her through, through that. Ink, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she, Miss Tick, kind of, and, and Tiffany sort of have a, a somewhat fractious um, encounter where they're almost trying to outsmart Alec each other. Um, mm. And uh, she she sort of tells Tiffany about the, the barriers between the worlds that are um, weakening. Uh, but she's convinced that Tiffany can't become a witch because of uh, she lives under chalk and the chalk is too sort of soft and uh, malleable a, a landscape to support um, a witch which kind of as, as we've seen in other uh, Discworld books there's this really strong link between the witch and the land and the witches is very rooted and airty people compared to the you know wizards as uh, head in the clouds ivory tower types um, so Mystic leaves, but uh, is it is it then soon after that um, Tiffany's brother is is stolen? That's right. Yeah, um, and, and she, she returns back... to the fair and and finds Mystic's toad, uh, her talking toad that she's left there because she's gone off to get help from other witches. Um, so she's left the toad there to sort of be a, a guide of sorts to Tiffany. Um, and That's now right. Tiff, Tiffany's whole family are in a panic because her little brother is missing uh, and she go with the toad's help she goes and, and finds the Nat Mac Figo, right? 
At this, uh, well, at this point, before she goes to the toad, um, the Knack McFeagle uh, tried to steal a sheep from the Oh, farm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. she puts a stop to immediately. And um, it seems the Knack McFeagle are somewhat uh, respective, respectable, uh, respecting of uh, Tiffany Aching because they believe that she's a hag, a witch. Um, so she makes some loud requests along the lines of, oh, I wish someone would fill up this bucket of water for me and the neck me feel, uh, help her out with it. So, um, they, yeah, so she's got a tenuous sort of relationship with the neck me at this point. And when she meets the toad, she also stumbles across the headless horseman, um, who the neck me help her stare down, stare down in the eyes that he doesn't have. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then at this point, she realizes that, uh, she, the Nacri Fiegel basically inform her that it's the queen who has taken, uh, her brother into this very loosely defined kind of dream world or something. So she needs to try and, uh, find, go after him, try and, uh, bring him back. But mm-hmm. in order to do this, she needs the help of the Knack McFeagle. So she goes basically into their little kind of grotto, which is underneath a, hi- a little hill. And there, uh, there's something of a ceremony where they find that the Knack McFeagle have a kind of uh, leader in the form of a Kelda. It's the one female, the, the mother, basically, of the entire clan. And she's the one who kind of does all the thinking for the Knack McFeagle and points them in the direction they need to go. Uh, the previous Kelda is basically on death's door. And just before she dies, she appoints Tiffany as the new Kelda, uh, which gives her a certain edge. But uh, before she can do that, what happens, Colin? Um, well, Tiffany, uh, the previous Kelda has a daughter called Fionn, who by um, Figo tradition can't be Kelda of her own clan. She has to marry one of them. So, you know, she's related to all of them. So she would have to go off and and find a new clan, but she's a bit reluctant to do this, and she's very suspicious of Tiffany as an outsider. Uh, so she sort of catches Tiffany out when Tiffany's appointed Kelda, and says that, like, as part of the tradition, Tiffany has to marry one of the uh, Fiegel. Um, Tiffany finds this out when she hears them discussing about how, like, how many babies she's got to have. <laughs> and she's nine. <laughs> so like five times the size of any of them. Uh, but but she's able to get around this. She initially panics, but then she's able to get around this by um, uh, arranging to marry Rob Anybody, who's like the, the Fiegel's leader, but only do so on a certain day when a mountain at the end of the world is finally chipped away by a bird who goes there to sharpen his beak every day. Uh, which anyone who, who watches... Um, uh, Doctor Who will be familiar with the same um, kind of story slash metaphor being used to, to great effect in one of the Peter Cavaldi <laughs> episodes uh, where he's punching a wall for a million billion years. Um, it's a lot better than it sounds, <laughs> trust me. Um, but I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so so the, the, the uh, Fiegel are, are on her side now and they help her go into, the, uh, into Fairyland, into the Queen's Realm. Which she finds is a very odd place. It's a it's a sunless realm that's permanently snowing, uh, but it, it feels quite unreal and insubstantial. Like she has a sense that a lot of the the background um, as she approaches it, it only forms into being, as it were, when she's there, when it knows it's being watched. That it, it isn't there when she's not there to see it. It's sort of like the the Descartes um, evil genie philosophical metaphor of the idea of you're the only one you know who's real and how do you know that everything 
else isn't an illusion when you're not watching it. Uh, or it also reminded me of playing like a say like a, a you know a video game from previous generations where you you can see the the kind of stuff forming as as you uh, approach it. Um, like, <laughs> so puts it up. Did you ever try to find the uh, Temple of the Ancients in Final Fantasy VII? And you're going around in the little yeah. uh, like sailing around the sea, the tiny Bronco, and like it'll see like a mountain appear out of the distance when you get close <laughs> enough to it. Yeah, but it yeah, had I, yeah, I, that sort of sense. Hmm. Uh, it should be said that at this point, while um, Tiffany is exploring uh, uh, this weird fantasy dream world, she's having a lot of flashbacks uh, to the time that she spent with Granny Aching, her, her grandmother, yeah, yeah. who a lot of people, they didn't outright say she was a witch, but there's definitely kind of insinuations that she had some kind of power of sorts. And it is, it's very different uh I quite like uh, Granny Aking's portrayal in this and that it was very different from the likes of, say, um, Nanny Og or uh, uh, Granny Weatherwax who very much wear the fact that they're a witch on their sleeve and it's very apparent. Whereas Granny Aking, she seen, everyone seems to have this knowledge of her, but it's never outrightly, outright acknowledged or said. She's never proclaimed to be a witch. And a lot of this is due to the fact um, there was one other woman who other people... Uh, uh, pointed fingers and said that they she was a witch um i forget her name now at the moment a little old lady uh but basically things didn't end well for her when a young boy called roland uh he is the the baron's son the yes the baron's son he goes missing in the woods one year uh one one yes one, one year and um everybody assumes that the little old lady who lived in the woods has something to do with it so they catch her and burn her yeah which Although, tiffany it, finds sorry we, we yep. find it that happened after granny aching died and kind of I, I don't know if tiffany ever says it but the sort of feeling we get from her is that this wouldn't have happened if she was around um mm. and it's almost like tiffany's aware of this hole in her little society that needs to be filled now that granny aching's gone you know that like bad mm. stuff's happening because there's no one there to i suppose like uh, I don't know, police people are offered a kind of form of advice and authority that, that, that she did. Uh, yeah, th mm. those bits are sprinkled. Um, you're right, we hadn't mentioned them at all up until now, but the, the kind of memories of Granny Aiken are sprinkled in italics throughout the entire book and really, I think, enrich our view of, like, the, the chalk and of Tiffany herself and of, like, the role she's going to fill within that society and why it's important. Hmm. Yeah, so um, so up until this point, um, Tiffany has constantly just been uh, having the memory of her grandmother sort of powering her along in a way and like, you know, teaching her little lessons at appropriate points in the story. So at this point, uh, Tiffany encounters a drome, which is kind of a leech-like creature that uses the dreams or memories of the people it's trying to trap against it to kind of trick it into staying within this world the drone has created. So the drone creates a world for Tiffany in which she wakes up in her own bed and, uh, you know, it's like, oh, everything was a dream. The Knack McFeagal were a dream. The Queen was a dream. Everything's fine. And uh, she goes downstairs and, you know, everything seems a little bit off, but more or less normal. And just when she's about to eat, some, uh, eat her breakfast... Uh, the Knack McFeagle burst out of uh, the oven in her kitchen and tell her not to eat anything. 
and that's when Tiffany notices that her mother is actually the drone, uh, a weird featureless kind of thing, and she tries to attack it, and it basically gets her out of the dream. Um, and once she does that, uh, what happens then, Colin? Um, soon after, she encounters uh, Roland, the Baron. Well, we, we soon find out he's Roland, the Baron's son who went missing, who it turns out was taken into Fairyland uh, years before. And he's sort of, um, uh, he's quite like high-handed and um, arrogant, but also clearly quite scared. And he sort of wants to get out, but he can't really believe that she can do it. Um, so she offers to, to uh, help him leave, but um, he, he doesn't immediately take her up on it. Uh, she soon after then ends up in, in one of his dreams, which is kind of a dream of a ballroom full of people with animals' heads. Uh but it turns out the drone in that dream has sort of made it look so that like Roland looks like a drone and the drone looks like Roland with the hope of confusing Tiffany. But she figures this out when she hears him try to speak and he can't, uh, the, the kind of drone Roland can't speak. So she ends up killing him, uh, much to Roland's alarm when even though it works and it gets him out of the dream, he's sort of, he's very uh, put off by the fact that she, um, she was so ready to uh, risk his life. Um... They then end up in another dream where it's it's a lot of people cracking a nut. They're all kind of tiny people mm. in, in long grass. Uh, and it's here where Tiffany sees um, Wentworth, who's surrounded by sweets and is so overwhelmed oh, yes. by the choice of the different sweets he could have that he's not even happy. He's just like panicking and <laughs> crying. She promises to take him home, but uh, what, what, what happens then? Uh, then our, the antagonist, the queen, shows up and basically confronts um, Tiffany on this. And she basically tries to trap her. Like she, she, The Queen's entire agenda is trapping children uh, because she wants to be mothering to them and kind of leech off of them. Uh, so she wants to keep Tiffany there as well. But at this point, Tiffany is aware there's small voices coming out of the nut that the people are trying to crack. And this is when she's very much aware that Anak McFeagle are inside it somehow. So she convinces Roland to crack the nut open, which he eventually does, and the Nack McFeagle pour out, and they help her escape. So at this point, they're all fleeing from the Queen, and they're not really sure what to do. They don't know how to get out of this dream world, but Tiffany has an idea how to get out. So she sees a drone up ahead, and rather than avoiding it, like she, they've been trying to do this whole time, she runs directly at it, so that it'll bring, her, bring them all directly into another dream which is um, where she's on a boat. Or sorry, yeah, on a boat. Uh, and it turns out the boat that she's on is actually on a sea, which is in the background of the tobacco packets that her grandmother used to smoke. Or she used to, yeah, used to smoke. And while she's on this ship, this giant whale appears. And it's clearly the queen herself in a somewhat monstrous form. And she starts giving chase Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, is this right? Hang on. Yes, she starts giving chase, and they try to escape. But then, oh, what was it? They try the ship shows up. They try to make for the lighthouse. Um, yeah, and, and Tiffany yeah. kind of dreams up the other ship because she remembers uh, Granny Aiken telling her the story when she looked at the the tobacco packet of how the whale was chasing the the sailor ship. So Tiffany kind of dreams up that ship and she's saying because it's her dream, she's hoping that the whale will have to kind of follow the logic of it. He'll have to chase the other ship, mm. or she rather, because the whale's the queen. Uh, 
and they they make it to the lighthouse but then um the sea recedes and the Fiegel are kind of tempted to go in and search the shipwrecks that have been left below but as they are the sea starts coming back and it's with the overwhelm them in a giant wave tiffany realizes she can't make it back uh to name a time so she um she runs through the lighthouse door with Roland and she kind of then arrives in, she hopes this will get her out, but basically she kind of runs right into the, the queen after that, uh, is guilting Tiffany about abandoning her brother and the fecal to be smashed by the wave. Tiffany sort of trying to, um, you know, reboot what she says and summon some confidence and summon some sense of coherence or kind of, whole consciousness is sliding away she's becoming more and more dreamlike and more and more under the, the queen's control that way mm. uh, and so what happens then uh, so at this point essentially what happens is Tiffany basically establishes a connection between herself and the chalk the land of the chalk because beneath the chalk is uh, flint which so the chalk might be considered very soft and malleable and not very great for um, forming a witch, whereas flint is like obviously diamond hard almost. So that uh, this is something that is confirmed later by Mystic that um, having a witch on flint would of course breed a very very strong witch, evidenced by Granny Aching, who Tiffany sort of feels a connection with at this point. So mm -hmm. she feels a lot of power from the land surging into her, and she basically goes all super saiyan at this point and <laughs> she grabs the queen and basically turns her back into her or turns her into her like original form which is this tiny pathetic little gremlin type creature yeah and once she does that she basically has a lot of control over the worlds that she's in and she's able to bring went uh, she's able to bring roland and wentworth who didn't actually uh die under the waves he was actually saved by the Nack McFeagle in some kind of unspecified way that the Nack McFeagle are so very good at and they're brought back to the land of the chalk and just before they leave through the gate um, Tiffany sees the queen again and she makes some mocking comments about how uh, you know that she'll be back you know very generic stuff <laughs> and uh, Tiffany just announces well this is my land and I'll always be here so you know I'll be guarding it so once this happens this is somewhat the end of the book but then we get a bit of a cameo appearance and who would that be from Colin? That's from uh, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og who show up uh, having Mystic finally arrived with the belated cavalry uh, they're quite impressed with, with Tiffany's bit of witching um, Granny's even more impressed when Tiffany stands up to her and says about how she doesn't have to, uh, you know, tell her um, everything she asks. Well, Granny gives Tiffany a sort of like a kind of an imaginary or invisible witch's hat um, and essentially makes her the kind of witch, in, official witch in training of the chalk. Uh, Tiffany then returns home and uh, Roland has gotten all the credit for saving Tiffany and her brother and she doesn't really mind. He's kind of embarrassed by that. Uh, but he's still a bit of a uh, stuck-up posh little dope who, who threatens her for not speaking to him respectively and she uses the fact that some of the fiegel are still on, on her side to scare him and to I suppose like extract promises from him that he'll be a better baron than his father and take care of the people and uh, gets across to him that she'll be watching him the whole time um, and that about, that about brings the, the book to a close 
Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so that was that's the Mac McFeagle, and as we know, this uh, continues on for another four books, I believe. After this, yeah, only yeah. one of which I've actually read. So I've actually I've no idea how this entire mini Discworld series progresses. Um, so I'm basing I'm basing this very much on the merits of a single book, really. Um. So yeah, I've got to ask, uh, what did you think of it as a book? Uh, I, I I quite liked it. It's uh, um with with this one just down to like work schedule and things. I, I read it in a real uh, hurry. Actually, I only finished it the day before, uh, like last night. Um. Uh, so in some ways, I kind of wish I, I had been able to take a little more time to enjoy it. It it, it sort of it feels um like he's going back to a lot of earlier ideas and a lot of uh, earlier concepts and putting them sort of into this new neater more polished young adult book package than when he initially used them and they were a bit more rough around the edges you know like we talked about when we done carpe jugulum of how the fegal are fun but they just they sort of don't really fit in with that book at all like their presence is completely you know, unnecessary. He almost has to kind of invent a little like C list villain for for them to to vanquish to justify why they're there. Um, and certainly Tiffany's whole journey feels like a, a more nuanced version of and drawn out version of Esk in Equal Rights. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, if I'm being honest, uh, I kind of disagree. I didn't really like this book very much at all. Um. So I remember, I think I told you before that uh, I was looking forward to coming back to this book again because I kind of had it in my head that I was pretty sure it was a good book, but I couldn't Mm -hmm. really remember anything about it. I think I told you the only part of it that stuck out in my mind was the bit where they were under the hill and uh, Tiffany was tricking the Knack McFeagal into, you know, marrying Rob anybody, yada yada, like, you know, in a million years whenever that mountain get like worn down that's the only bit that i could actually remember and reading it again i think i can see why i personally think the narrative of this is kind of a mess like there's a good story in there some good characters but the structure of the book is an absolute disaster in my opinion wow okay like it's it's like i mean like even now, I I read this a week ago, and already I'm struggling to remember like the actual structure of like the series of events and how things happen because everything seems so interchangeable. Like uh, you know, we, like we're trying to like say so what happens like from point A from point B, and essentially it's like oh they visit a bunch of worlds and like how do they get there? Oh she just wakes up or oh she's just there, and I'm like I felt like this was really really lazy. And like soppy storytelling. Now I know a lot of this. I kind of have to make some allowances because it's a young adult book, and also we are coming off the heels of Nightwatch, which is our new number one book. Mm-hmm. So you know it was a colossal. The bar has never been higher at this point. So you know, no matter which book we were coming on afterwards, was going to suffer. But I don't know. I mean, there's so much here that just didn't ring true to me. Um, the structure obviously is the big one. Like once they actually go into the dream world, I just feel like it's just a series of vignettes that are like, are all very similar. Uh, like I completely forgot that the, um, the dream with, what was it? The dream with the nut and oh, there's another one just before that, like they meld together and like, they don't differentiate themselves very well at all. Um, 
a lot of the characters feel like watered down, you know, discount versions of ones we've seen before. Like Mystic, I kind of feel like was initially supposed to be like her own character, but she was just supposed to be like, you know, a Granny Weatherwax type figure who, you know, um, because like she has this vague sense of authority and she's kind of a little bit uh, smart and cheeky with Tiffany. And she's like, oh, you know, she knows a little bit more and she's letting on. It's like, that's very much an encounter you would expect with uh, Granny Weatherwax. Tiffany is a little bit better. I feel like she could very well, this could very well have originally been a prequel book and it was about Granny Weatherwax growing up. Um, I, I could easily see that because I see a lot, I could, I sort of see elements of Granny Weatherwax's character in Tiffany Aching. It's not terrible. Like, I don't think it's like a very clean cut and copy paste because uh, Terry Pratchett adds enough elements into Tiffany's character to make her stand out. Um, from Granny Weatherwax. She's not a clear-cut copy and paste. Um, sorry, I've rambled on a little bit there. Like, how, how do you feel about like the characters in general? Like, or do, do you feel like any of this rings true for you? Or um, I mean, I sort of see what you mean structure-wise, and it's a very simple structure of, like, her, uh, you know, her little brother gets stolen, she goes to find her little brother, enters the world, runs through a lot of trials, gets him. Uh, it's labyrinth, you know, uh, minus the bog of a terrible yeah. stench. And the Queen isn't as well endowed in the crotch area as David Bowie's Jarrett is. <laughs> um, uh, it was almost making me think. I was like getting such elaborate vibes. I was like, oh, remember like an elaborate, you have your man Hoggle, and he's sort of blackmailed by uh, Jarrett. And I was thinking, oh, is the Toad going to be a traitor or something like Hoggle? Um, <laughs> the bug of a turtle stench. But uh, I, I think the characters are, are a strong point of it for me. I think Mystic's an interesting one because. She begins, and she's very much uh, like, you know, seemingly the, the kind of like mentor um, person who, you know, uh, knows much uh, be- uh, more than anyone else uh, in the place. But she's certainly quite distinct from Granny early on in that the whole notion of her traveling with the, the fake hat, the, the kind of hat that can like, uh, you know, be folded so as not to look like a witch hat. Like, you can't imagine Granny going in anywhere no. and for safety's sake be like, oh, pretend I'm not a witch, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> and, and like stuff like the uh, "I'll teach you a lesson, you won't forget in a hurry." And Tiffany goes in, and she's very different than all the other teachers. But then, very quickly, we get a sense of like Tiffany being kind of a you know a match for her um, mm. after a certain fashion in a way that I don't think you would get with Granny Weatherwax. Like that bit at the end when um, Granny takes her hat off to Tiffany is something she really has to earn throughout the book from what she do- does. Like I think if you had Granny Weatherwax in this role from the start, she wouldn't be on the back foot to the young character at the start it will be as it is here like the big moment at the end um, mm. and, and and I think then too like like Mystic is obviously kind of more she's shown up I suppose to be more perhaps like blinkered in her uh, by her worldview and, and, and the knowledge she holds of, of witchcraft like how strongly she feels of you can't have a witch on chalk when we sort of find out like the sense we get as Granny Aiken was kind of a witch even if she didn't know it um Mm. Uh, and and I, I do think it's interesting that I said like she's she sort of she has this back and forth with Tiffany that definitely positions her as more of a, a less uh, certain or assured mentor than someone like Granny Weatherwax or even someone like Vimes is to the to the younger coppers. Uh, but she goes off and gets Granny and Annie, and then when she comes back with Granny and Annie, she's almost like she's in the McGrath role or something. Like she just she, uh, yeah. I, I I 
I made my note here, which kind of, and this is going to completely alienate most of our audience, I'd imagine, but it borrows pro wrestling terminology. And I said, like, Granny gives Tiffany the robe here, which is when you have a big star kind of associating with someone who's on the up and just their sort of presence or getting the nod from them is something to signal to the audience of, like, oh, this, this person's important now. Uh, so she gives Tiffany the robe, but she makes Miss Tick look much more hapless than she initially did at the start, you know? Um, like, That's even true, the way yeah. it's sort of. Uh, when Tiffany gets cheeky with Granny, or, or, or I suppose gets stubborn, and Mystic's like, "Oh, Tiffany, you shouldn't be saying that," and Granny's like, "No, I don't care." You know, that's uh, it's, it's sort of weird that she's in that role of. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm sure it's a kind of role we've seen in Discworld before, where you have the like the wise old head who's somewhat a formidable figure, and they have a kind of assistant. To, it's sort of like like the, the way the Abbot uh, in Tifa Time was, where like he's kind of appreciates Lucy's way of doing things, but the people around him are much more kind of set up on ceremony and, uh, you know, much more suspicious of anything unorthodox. And she's sort of positioned like that at the end uh, in a way that kind of makes her, uh, I suppose, makes her appear much less of a uh, clever, worldly mentor figure than we might have initially uh, believed her to be. And I think that's one of the interesting parts of this book for me, while it does follow quite a simple structure, is we talked in... um, Nightwatch about like uh, Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces and these story beats, you know, so many stories hit. And I think this one sort of plays them in a way. Like like Tiffany has all of these mentors, largely um, female mentors, like Miss Tick, the Kelda, Granny Weatherbox and Nanny at the end, Granny Aching, and then the Queen as a, a kind of shadow mentor, you know, who's trying to undermine everything she would have taught. But you have like Miss Tick who teaches her some stuff, but is ultimately wrong about that there can't be a witch on chalk, leaves and is then no help to her. She leaves the toad behind, who uh, the toad kind of, and, and I, I couldn't make my mind about this, I, I like the payoff with the toad later being a lawyer uh, when, when the queen summons these lawyers to that are the only thing the Fiegel are afraid of, and the toad remembers he was a lawyer, and you know, he helps them out, but he sort of recedes into the background, and I was thinking, oh, is this you know a bit of sloppy writing that excuse me that Pratchett thought of this ending of like, oh, I'm going to have to Toad be a lawyer, but he didn't have anything for the Toad to do in between. But then I thought, like, mm. it also kind of fulfills this function of Tiffany really has to depend on herself. Like, she'll take the Toad out of her apron and be like, oh, what do I do? And the Toad's, oh, I don't know, you know? And then she, she mm. so she doesn't have any uh, um, help uh, at all. Like, the Toad is like the shittest version of Navi from Legend of Zelda. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, but so so there's that there's the Kelda who kind of offers her brief words of wisdom but then dies before like you know Tiffany has to go out and do the business herself and Granny Aching obviously hangs over the book in a big way but like you know she's dead and gone before it starts so I, I sort of found it interesting the way it sets up all these mentors but ultimately kind of undermines the extent to which they can actually help Tiffany and she has to depend on herself um and more depend on what she learns from them than what they, you know, uh, said or told her to do. Um, and I think Tiffany is one of the best parts in this book about, like, I, I compared her to Esk in Equal Rights. She's such, so much more of a nuanced, filled-out character than Esk is. Like, in every way, I think, like, she has, like, a, for the length of the book, she has kind of a detailed enough family dynamic when you see her, like, her relationship with her older sisters who are kind of, you know, much more... Uh, like they're obviously a bit older, they've hit puberty, they're looking out for, for boys and so on, and she's kind of a, like a quieter type. Her, her relationship with her little brother, I think, is so 
uh, well done in just being mm. so coldly real, like that she doesn't, if she loves him, it's in a way that doesn't manifest itself and actually feeling nice towards him a lot. She kind of thinks of him as a nuisance, you know, but she still feels mm. a sense of responsibility to him. And then just little things like uh, when um, I said that line about uh, she, she thinks of the word give us and how she's happy. She makes a point of using it in conversation and the narrator says it's possible this tells you more about Tiffany than she would like you to know. Uh, kind of mm. like showing she, she thinks of uh, a lot of herself. Or when she says later, like, you know, yes, I'm me, I'm careful and logical, and I look up things I don't understand, and when I hear people use the wrong words, I get edgy. I'm good with cheese, I read books fast, I think, and I always have a piece of string. That's the kind of person I am. You know, so we get the sense of this kind of, like, quite quiet, measured, practical person, but also in a way that isn't necessarily always a good thing, you know, probably makes her, like, she's kind of, like, got a... uh, I suppose a lack of patience around um, uh, around people and kind of thinks a lot of herself. Um, so, yeah, being in her head for the length of the book is more interesting than being in Esks. I mean, it's kind of why the character, that sort of proto-Granny Weatherwax, we get an equal rights isn't even necessary because it would be dull just to be in Esks. Also, I think it's interesting that when you consider like equal rights going from charting this journey from Esk starting out in the village to then becoming this prodigy in Unseen University. It's like here with Tiffany, he's gone back and said, you know what, I shouldn't just do that in one book. You know, like by the end of this book, she's beginning her witch's training and she has the invisible hat. Uh, And I haven't read any of the other uh, Tiffany books. So, you know, I'd imagine as, as it goes on, she kind of like progresses on her witch's training as it were, rather than doing a whole book that where she goes from, you know, complete, ingenue and novice to master um over the course of a couple of hundred pages also the difference in magic in that i mean obviously esk's thing is that she's a kind of female wizard rather than a witch and trying to balance the two but tiffany it's it's very much it's witch stuff you know it's it's kind of headology that helps her uh get ahead even that bit at the end when she sort of has the power of the the chalk behind her and it's just like dreams <laughs> it was a super saiyan he said that's the Dragon Ball Z mm. thing, isn't it? Yeah, even that she kind of acknowledges, oh, this isn't going to last, so I've got to make it mm. count. You know, um, I think it, it, it's not a fair, I hope you put it, it's not a fair comparison in the sense of equal rights is obviously in, in the written before any of the other witches' books. So it's, it's not, you know, he, his idea of what was witch magic and what was wizard magic is a little less well-formed there than it is now after all of these other ones. But this makes so much more sense as a witch's journey you know that like that big colorful uh dream power is just a temporary thing and her kind of real power is going to be being the one on the edge who makes the decisions yeah i mean like don't get me wrong i think like the ideas are well formed it's just i think the writing was sloppy for so much of it like the one thing that really really irked me was even though it's a very enjoyable scene uh where um Tiffany goes into the tent and she's talking with Mystic, looking for information on Jenny Greenteeth and, you know, the Knack McFeagal. I absolutely hated that after every sing- every second sentence, you can just go inside Mystic's head and she says, oh my God, what have I found here? It's like, who is this girl? Oh my God, she's so great. And I was like, Jesus Christ, we get it. You're building her up to be a cool character who's very capable. Give it a rest. Give her time to actually develop before you start foreshadowing all this. I yeah, really, yeah, that's fair. Really, that I, that I just thought that was like really lazy writing, and like I, 
I, I it just it annoyed me so much that it, I feel like it sullied so much of the rest of the book for me. I also there's parts of Tiffany's uh, journey that I like, but other parts I just feel like. I feel like she has so little agency. I feel like no one in this book has any agency, really. There's kind of being, like, steamrolled along. Um, I also really strongly dislike the ending. The um, the whole her being, like, possessed by the land. That's felt like such a deus ex machina. Like, there was no... I didn't feel like she earned that whatsoever. She got into a state where she was cornered by the witch and says, okay, what do I have to do? And if it was a really good... Like, if, if she really was developed as... Uh, a better character here where she had to use her head she had to outsmart the witch then like she would have done that in like a logical way but instead it was like yeah now she's a super saiyan now she's got superpowers now can she beat the witch and i'm like that did not rub me up the right way at all and like we've discussed this before how quite often characters have to defeat the um the uh antagonist in like a figurative symbolic sense and also in a physical sense here it's just physical i don't feel like there was any kind of symbolic victory here at all like the closest you can say to it is tiffany convincing herself that yes she is a logical person and that she's kind of accepting herself as that but that doesn't tie up with what's happening in any way in my opinion so it just it's it's messy and it's sloppy it's, yeah that's my take on it yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would. I, I, I think I feel a little less strongly about you would, but I would struggle to uh, dispute what you said. I would, I would argue about the agency point. I mean, she makes the decision to go after her brother. You know, she's kind of in oh, charge yeah, yeah, of the eagle. Yeah. Like, obviously, they help her out. And as I said, there's like multiple moments where it's like she's going to seek, a, you know, another source of help, whether it's Mystic or the Toad or whoever, and there's no help to her, and she's got to do it herself. Um, so I do think that, like, I think that's one of the stronger points is that she's kind of. And it's a very understandable like thing, given that she is a child protagonist, that she would look for someone else to help you out and for her to continually be put in a position where it's like, no, there's no one here to make this decision for you. It's got to be you uh, is a strength. But I, I agree with you about the ending. I think it, it kind of reminds me of, of a lot of early Discworld books, like Moving Pictures or Reaper Man or Mort. Um, and, you know, this is uh, like I'm not saying all of these are equally good or equally bad, but in the sense of the climax is kind of dreamlike. Uh, and is sort of muddled, but also very vivid uh, in, in terms of like how, you know, it's all about, I suppose, tapping into themes and feelings of the books done uh, being set up and explained um, in a satisfactory way in plot terms. So whether it works or not is really dependent on how well those teams have been established and how well the kind of dreamlike ending climax taps into them. Uh, mm. And I do think there is, like something lacking with this part like that i think the contrast with horror and the, the the queen the sort of symbolic defeat of the queen is horror as being tiffany is being rooted in this place you know in the chalk like i love the imagery of her imagining like they talk about the chalk being from uh, fossils formed millions of years ago and she's like imagining herself in the ocean millions of years ago um and feeling everything there i, I thought like i just I, yeah i loved how trippy and, and dreamlike that was and there, there's that kind of sense of contrast there and turning that uh i suppose um selfishness she's tasked with about like her feelings over her brother and her feelings over her um home as like oh you don't care about it you just want it because it's yours turning that into a kind of a good thing like it's a responsibility like she's saying mm. i'm feeling this land and um you know all of its history so yeah it's mine but it's mine to protect so i like all of that mm. but i i do think 
I suppose there's something missing in it in the sense of in comparison to Lords and Ladies, which is a, a very high bar, but, you know, it is the, an obvious comparison point here because it's the other one that has the Queen of the Elves as an antagonist. Um, that, that actually, can I just uh, point out something there? Like, mm-hmm. this is something that's really unclear as well, that, like, I don't think that's the same character, the Queen. I don't think it's supposed to be the Queen of the Elves. And if it is, it's not clear. And if it's not, it might as well be the same character. Oh, oh like, I, think it, so... I think it definitely is, because they talk about her fighting with the, the King in the same way that they, they talked about it in Lords and Ladies. Like, unless it's a kind of, you know... There are a million queens, like there's loads of these parasite universes, and they're all sort of the same. But I, I definitely get the feeling it's it's the um, it's the same character. I, although I do think that is a kind of deliberate decision in the book that we, we mentioned with uh, with Morris that it, it felt like it could almost not be a Discworld book. You know, it could kind of be generic fantasy land. Um, and and this is less so of that because we've got the Fiegel who are in Discworld before, and we've got like the Discworld concept of of witchcraft. But there, it's still it, it's standaloneness is or it's um, I suppose there's a very uh, clear sense to me of like decisions taken to make sure that like if this is the first Discworld book young readers are going to be reading, they're not going to be put off by any weight of continuity. So we don't get anything about the like Achuan and the Discworld and the, you know like that that sort of stuff that would expect us to know. Mm. And even I thought notably when Granny Weatherwax shows up at the end. Um, obviously, if you've read the other ones, it's kind of you get a kick out of like, oh, it's Granny and Nanny. Um, but mm. like, if you, if you're just reading this one, it, it's it's well established quite quickly, you know, what kind of character she is. But you also have this that she's continually referred to as Mistress Weatherwax, presumably not to confuse her with Granny Aching. Um, mm, yeah. And the fact that Granny Aching is taking precedence in that particular uh, um, uh, title in this in this book is kind of pointing towards the fact that they're expecting, oh, well, a lot of people won't have read the other witch books, no, Granny Weatherwax, so, you know, uh, it, w- it will just um, confuse them. So I think the Queen occupies similar territory, where if you've read Lords and Ladies, you can piece it together, but they, they're they very wary of saying something like, having mystics say, oh, yeah, she was around a couple of years ago in Lancre, and then, you know, mm. have some kid be like, oh, wait, where's Lancre? Should I have heard of this? Should I uh, Do I need to read this one to understand what's going on? Um <sighs> Well, that's the thing. I think, like, something like that wouldn't be so bad. Like, you know, I don't think... I think he could say something like, oh, yeah, you know, she was showed up here in Lankra. I don't think that would be a very disorienting thing to throw in there just to kind of establish it. Like, I don't think it would throw off younger readers as well. But I think you've highlighted kind of a key issue here in that, like, to really appreciate this book, I think it's kind of dependent on you not having read the rest of it because... If you have read other ones, I think it's impossible not to draw comparisons between other better books because we're kind of retreading a very similar story here and a very watered down one at that. Um, And you're definitely right that there is something missing at the end when it comes to like the final confrontation with the Queen, um, because usually that's some kind of uh, resolution of the themes of the books. But I don't really feel there are any themes in this book like worthy of note and mention. The only one that I could find, and I will say I did like this. This is the key part of the book that I took away and that I did enjoy a lot was the relationship between Tiffany and her brother and basically Tiffany and family. So if I was to take anything from this, it would be the notion of like family and familial love and the idea of it being like a contract, Mm -hmm. you know? So... And I think I do think that's really interesting. I feel like I'm not going to say it's bad. I feel like it could be developed better, but it is still very interesting in the way that it's explored. I really, really enjoy the, the notion 
of um you know people expecting uh you to obviously oh well it's my brother so obviously i love him and it's one of the few times i feel like terry pratchett didn't chicken out at the end where you do kind of get the sense that yeah tiffany kind of loves her but in a very kind of passive objective sort of way not in a lovey-dovey he's like he's my brother i love him he's like he's my brother and he's mine like you said it's very cold very calculating very witch-like and that's kind of great i love that i love that idea that just like okay yes they're my family and i'm not going to be like suckered into making dumb decisions because of stupid sentimental nonsense you know i'm a witch and therefore i'm going to take the logical approach and this culminates in the one moment that i really really liked was um when she doesn't save wentworth and afterwards, like, she's agonizing over that decision she made. And, like, it's encapsulated so well when she's like, so, you know, I could have been, like, smart, alive, sensible, or, oh, I could have been, like, uh, brave, heroic, uh, courageous, but I'd also be dead and stupid. Or I could be brave, heroic, and sensible and logical. And, like, yes, obviously, it's better to be one of the two, but is it necessarily a good thing? You know, mm-hmm. when does it make her a good person, even if it is logical? And that's good. That was really interesting. But that's the that's like the only shining light for me in this book. The rest of it, I just felt like it fall, fell apart so much. Like, I also felt like the... Uh, I was going to say, I don't feel like the Knack McFeagle have a huge amount to do in this as well. Like, they're great to kind of... For the mischievous little bits at the start. I felt like all the best parts for the Knack McFeagle were when they're in the real world, when they're like, you know, messing around with uh, Tiffany's sheep and, uh, you know, helping her with her chores. And then that bit under the hill is quite nice. But once they go into the dream world, it's like, you know, whatever. It's just kind of dull and boring. <laughs> you know, they don't. I don't feel like they have much to contribute. I suppose uh, you can make a case for this book being a book about responsibility, right? In that you have this contrast between the kind of insubstantial parasite universe of the elves or we're told about a kind of uh, colouring itself in the closer you get, and in the landscape of the chalk that's grounded in the really gritty, practical work of its inhabitants, there's a great line from uh, Tiffany at the end, actually comes to quite like, a light moment when your man Hamish, the, the feagle who flies around on a buzzard, takes her suggestion mm. of a parachute by like basically robbing a pair of her knickers, um, which are kind of like long, voluminous bloomers, because she's like a farm girl, and using them as a parachute. <laughs> And he said, I have to take some of the lace off. And she thinks she I, I, she liked the lace. She didn't have many things that weren't necessary. And that kind of sums up yeah. the sort of like lifestyle she and all of her family have. You know, it, it's very kind of work orientated. It's very grounded and just a necessary compared to the, the queen and the world of the elves. That's grounded in all of this uh, luxury and style that's completely insubstantial. And mm. you can kind of extend that uh, um, contrast to what you were just talking about with the feelings of familial love that, you know, like to love someone and to take care of them doesn't always mean giving them what they want all the time. Wentworth just wants sweets mm. all the time. Tiffany sometimes has to be the bad cop and that makes her annoyed and impatient with him, but she's ultimately better for him. We see at the very end, uh, you know, she tells him about like, oh, you go down and what is it, like fill up this pail of water and he does it. He's kind of learning to, you know, like actually be, be a bit useful uh, and listen to her versus the queen saying like, no, he'll be happier here. You don't really care about him and she'll just give him what he wants all the time. Um, yeah, I, and I think that with the Fiegel then, like, you sort of have them, you can arguably see them as a part of that, where they're just, like, absolute pure, raw uh, id, you know, they just run around drinking and stealing, and they, like, oh, I love that detail, but they think they're in heaven, 
and that's just colors oh, their yeah. their view of the whole world. But at the head of them, they kind of acknowledge they need the Kelda, who's the smart one, and gonna make the hard decisions and take responsibility. And then Tiffany's kind of trust in that position. So, like the whole time, yeah, this notion of responsibility is being uh, underlined throughout by the fact that she has these guys under her who, without her, would be just like running absolutely wild and senseless. And she kind of has to, you know, um, give them a sense of direction. Uh, and and I think that that comes up. There's a lovely bit at the end when the Queen's confrontation with Tiffany, when the Queen kind of. Um, like uh, mocks Tiffany at being cold and selfish, and um, uh, I, I just I, I feel it's it's the one she replies with the yes I'm me uh, bit I quoted earlier. But I feel it's something that would resound very much with I suppose like without wishing to generalize because Discworld's read by like tens of millions of people all over the world. But I feel like a lot of people that would read Discworld would be um, I suppose like quiet on at some level shy i really don't like to use the terms introverts and extrovert because i think that whole idea is a much more contextual thing than than that sort of binary would suggest but like i suppose people would be shy in some situations you know imagine to perhaps not have people around them that uh, uh they necessarily feel like it always um, bond with so that kind of jive of you being this cold and selfish person is something that rings true and i think particularly mm. for young girls who are always kind of encouraged to be smiley and happy and are often encouraged to put other people's happiness before their own i think like that mm. having a villain that's like uh you know trying to i suppose like guilt or almost gaslight the main character into thinking you're wrong and you're cold and you're selfish because you're doing the responsible thing for yourself and others rather than doing the fun thing and the hero mm. being able to stand her ground and be like no this is the right thing i think that's great um but there is something just overall, like, I sort of feel like missing with that contrast that like to the level where you have like the style and substance contrast that with McGrath and the Queen at the end of Lords and Ladies. It just it isn't I don't know, it isn't there as much. It isn't as clear. It isn't like it, it just feels like a little less fully well knitted together. You know, like I can take all mm. these pieces after the fact and, and see there are recurring ideas and they do there is a sense of them playing off one another but um yeah i I can't point my finger at what it is but but they are less well knitted together than they are in uh in in some of his other books like i think a lot of the ideas are really good ones but yeah yeah and i I think that 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 does more or less sum up my feelings as well Like, like you said there are good ideas here like you can see them but um as you said, like they're just not, and I, I think it, it comes down to, I personally think the second half of the book when they're going through the dream world, where I just feel like everything is a bit of a mishmash, and like I feel like a lot of the parts of this, like of that book, not even in terms of like the narrative progression, but even the thematic pre- uh, progression, you could just mix around and it would make the same amount of sense because you know the dreams are just like vaguely interconnected and it's just it's messy it's um but you know i maybe i was a bit harsh before like you've reminded me of like some of the bits that i really do like um the as you said like the responsibility aspect of it and the fact that tiffany is a little girl still mm-hmm. um that's something i think it's 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 not very well touched upon as i said i took great issue in the fact that um miss tick was like saying who is this girl like you know um what have i found here and like building her up to be something so huge from the very beginning when i felt it really wasn't earned but there is 
that sense still that she is a little girl and it does poke its way through every now and then and you are reminded of that and my favorite moment uh, in the entire possibly the entire book is that one moment where someone says a kind word to her and the way it's phrased is beautiful it's when uh, Hamish comes down it's the last time she sees the Knack McFeagle and he just says to her quite simply remember you are not unloved and that the way that was phrased is so good because um you know in if it was a different kind of character and they were trying to if they were really angling and if they're really uh, leaning into the sentimental side say, they would say something as simple as remember you are loved mm-hmm. or uh, you know or remember like you know people care about you but it's just like it's so matter-of-factly so cold so logical it says remember you're not unloved it's like oh okay it's like telling her the bare minimum of what she needs to know to kind of keep her going, which is exactly what Tiffany seems, as a character, seems to need. Yeah. Like, because she's smart enough to keep, uh, make the rest of the connections by herself. She just needs someone to say that, yes, remember, you're not unloved. It's like, yeah, that's true. I'm not unloved. I have a family. And then she just moves on. It's not a big sentimental moment. And I love that. So even though I took a lot of issues with the book in general, I have to commend Terry Pratchett, um, especially on the fact that this is a young adult novel. And if there is ever a book that I thought he might cop out on, I thought it might have been one of these ones. But he didn't on what could be seen as kind of a tricky topic. You know, she doesn't. he doesn't make Tiffany into this very sentimental character at the end who cares so much about how people see her or like how much people love her. It's a literal case of her living with the fact that she is a somewhat cold logical um uh intelligent person who's not phased by you know uh irrational emotions you know mm-hmm. so i i have to give it that. that 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 bit they didn't cop out on and i think that was that's really admirable but um yeah overall i think the big issue that we have what i don't know about you but the big issue that i have with this is i do feel like if you're coming at it by on on its own merits, if you were just to read this book by itself, it's fairly good. It's pretty, it's pretty solid, but we are comparing them to all of them because we're reading all of them. And for that reason, I feel like it doesn't stand up. So we're kind of, in a way we're measuring two different books and one of them's quite good. And the other is a bit of a letdown and it just depends on context, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of the drones? Didn't really do them for me. I I felt like they were very, um, very forgettable. I I completely forgot they were in the book again before. I was only reminded again when I when I was reading it. And I just they're fine. I, the best part, the the only moment I felt like they really shine is in the ballroom scene, and one of them disguises Roland as a yeah. drone, and he disguises himself as Roland, and then when he tries to talk. I thought, ooh, that's kind of creepy that he isn't actually able to talk. That's a bit weird. But it never really they never really get a moment to really shine. That was my personal take on it. How about I, you? I really like them. I mean, I, I think the description of them is just, you know, that's kind of like, uh, gives me a uh, creepy feeling, like these porridge-looking, dumpy little lads with tiny black eyes. And that idea mm. of when she has the dream of being at home and her man turns around and she is like the drone's face. Uh, mm. Yeah, so it struck me as suitably creepy, and and I like their. Then I mean, I I think on just on that level, they're like a cool, creepy little 
sub-boss for her to overcome. But then we get a bit more detail. <laughs> we get the idea of, like, that they have a world of their own that's kind of dying. Like, it's just uh, red seas and red skies, and they just sit on rocks alone. And when she's uh, she's in the dream that she makes with the Jolly Sailor thing, she sees the drone on the rock, and the Fiegel, uh you know, offer to kill it. And she goes, no, I think it's happy. It's found a dream it likes. So she kind of realizes that they're, you know, they're enslaved by the Queen, too. Um, so that like she shouldn't, I suppose, uh, hold it against them. So I thought they were nice, nice detail in like supplying a lot of creepy set pieces, but having a little more uh, depth and not just being this is a monster, you know, for no reason. They uh, there's a sense of them being mistreated and in their own way. I I mean no, I think for I think they in they as you said yeah they they are they have some interesting details and little backstories that should make them interesting i think for me personally it's, it's again it was because the book itself i felt sullied from the very beginning and when i read about them again here i just kind of felt okay so here's the other creature how's he going to describe them oh they're this shapeless blob thing it's like okay this ties very much into what i'm thinking about lazy writing it's kind of like okay i feel like this was his placeholder like he says, okay, I'm going to have an interesting monster here. Uh, for now, I'll just write them as shapeless blob and I'll come back and fill it in later. And then he forgot to do that. That's kind of the sense I got from it. But um, that, pretty that big might just talk be just from the me. Guy who, pretty big talk from a guy who wants to have a blobfish in his front garden. <laughs> true, true. That Now, I, I'm willing to accept that this is me. Like, uh, you know, I, I kind of came at this and I got off to a bad start with it so i'm not saying that like you know you're wrong in thinking that they are kind of creepy and they've got interesting backstory but for me personally they didn't gel because for for those reasons just because i felt like a lot of it just seemed lazy so not to say that it isn't it's just for me it didn't work um i also the bit with the toad and the lawyer I felt like, again, and again, I know this is for young adults, but I felt like he didn't really give people enough credit here, where it's like, very, very early on, uh, the Knack McFeagle say, we're afraid of nothing, oh, except lawyers, oh yeah, that's right, except for no, lawyers. No, I, I don't think they and, mention lawyers, did they mention lawyers explicitly, they say they're, early on, they're afraid yeah. of writing, like that they hold writing in awe, and the idea of getting their names down in writing, I no, don't they think do they say, say lawyers. Are you sure? Yeah, because yeah, I, because I remember, I remember they, looking out for that because the detail of like the the kind of Lord of the Rings joke of their swords glow blue in the presence of lawyers. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, oh, look, I'm not well, gonna, they, def- they, 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 def- they definitely, at the very least, they do mention lawyers. Like, and it is like you know, it's definitely at the very least insinuated that they have a fear of lawyers, even if they don't say it themselves. But like you know. Even if it's just like, you know, oh, their swords glow blue in the presence of lawyers. Like, I just felt like, oh, they're doing this lazy thing that they did with Miss Tick again. They're just like setting it up in such a lazy way and saying, okay, foreshadowing, there's going to be a lawyer showing up here. And oh, look, the toads start uh, saying legal, uh, legalese. So yeah, this is all very, very obvious. The one thing I will say is at least it ter- didn't turn out that the toad was actually going to fight against them. He was going to fight on their side. So that was something. But um yeah, just so so many little details of this rubbed me up the wrong way that it all uh, came together in a way I didn't really enjoy very much. Um, who else was there? What did you think of the granny aching parts, the uh, flashbacks? I did like them. I like, I like the way that Tiffany remembers granny aching. I really enjoy the fact that she doesn't have... Uh, 
stereotypical relationship with her in that like oh she was the only one who understood me and like mm-hmm. you know we talked and talked and talked it was like no they had a really awkward kind of relationship that doesn't again doesn't mean that like they didn't love each other but it was very very awkward uh especially i really liked the bit where tiffany won the shepherdess yeah uh, at the fair and then she brings it back and gives it to granny aching and what I love about that, now this this bit I really enjoyed. I love the fact that Tiffany looks back and thinks, oh, she must have really hated that because it was like I was giving it to her and saying, this is what a shepherdess should look like, not like you. And Granny Aching, you do, de- I, I, I feel like that's almost definitive. I think you, maybe you could read that different ways, but I definitely read it, read it that way. But the fact that she has it on full display all the time for when Tiffany sees it, so like you know just like she's saying yes okay this definitely hurt granny aching that you know you said such a thing but granny aching is aware that tiffany is just a child so Mm -hmm. she's like oh she's trying to do something nice it might have hurt me but i'm not going to let that show i'm going to like yes put it on proud display and i'm just going to like kind of take that bullet and it's, it's a little bit heartbreaking to see that she's doing this and like you kind of feel like oh my god that's such a hard thing for someone to do but she's she did it. She's a good person. Like, she's really good. I think that was one of the best moments, again, in the book. Um, what about you? What do you think of uh, the memories of Granny Aching? I, I really, really liked them. Um, I, I said that, like, that idea in the end of the kind of responsibility versus indulgence and, st- you know, substance versus style is, isn't is drawn out to the, whatever, to the extent that I'd like. But I think those bits really help tap into that, like setting up horror role in this uh, community and the kind of role it is where it's not really an official thing you know like which is very mm. witch like like it's not like she has some rank as like top she- shepherd or whatever but everyone just yeah. through seniority and experience everyone looks to her and i think it just does a really good job of exploring uh, grief from a, a child's point of view like the notion of losing yeah. one of the pillars of, of of your kind of uh community the pillars of your family there's your life uh like i said earlier there's a sort of sense of tiffany realizing granny aching dying has left his hole and it needs to be filled like thinking about the, the old woman that they killed as a witch and that that wouldn't have happened if granny aching was still around um i think like the contrast here that i, I think is really in his favor is with soul music which you know it begins with susan losing her parents and i i know it ends with her sort of the catharsis of her being able to cry but i, I think throughout we don't really get a sense of her even being someone who's in denial about being in grief, uh, uh, going through grief, you know, let alone someone who is, is openly grieving uh, on some level. Um, and here, I think that's explored much better. Like even the, again, the, the Queen's jibes to Tiffany of like, oh, you didn't cry, you know, for her. Um, and, and she's saying like, I, I didn't because I didn't have to. Uh, and it always puts me back to uh, like the, the, the first time um, someone uh, in, in my family close to me died was when i was i would have been 12 and uh my brother would have been like 10 or 11 and my sister even younger and i remember before the funeral my, my mom making this point of coming to us and saying like you know look if, if you if you have to cry that's fine but if you don't feel like crying that's okay other people will be but you know there's no right way to do this like it's it, you know it's it's going to be hard and long and drawn out and that's it's, it's something that's always um stuck with me and i just think it's, it's like something important and really torny to be drawn about grieving uh, in general in that it isn't a kind of easy or simple or straightforward 
uh, process, but often we can expect it to be, particularly from the outside in. You know, you often hear like public yeah. figures judged this way of like, oh, look, they only lost so and so weeks ago, and look at them now, you know, uh, in, a, mm. in a way that feels really uh, um, harsh and so on. Um, so I, I like kind of Tiffany's, uh, yeah, her, her grief for um, losing her granny being that more subdued, drawn out, complex thing that she has to wrestle with and wrestle with the the guilt of the expectations around her of like oh why isn't it a bigger deal for you you know you're a child mm. and you found her dead like you should be more upset yeah i yeah the one one slight caveat uh that i had like even though i agree with you completely there i really do like the way that grief is explored in this and i hadn't actually considered how relevant that is to the entire uh all the, th- the themes in the book but it really is um the one slight issue i had with it is as you said the queen says to uh tiffany oh you didn't even cry for your granny and tiffany says i didn't have to and i would have liked it if she just left it at that but she follows it up with because she never really left me and i'm like oh that's a bit sentimental and mushy i wish she hadn't said that you know it's it's a small thing i kind of understand that again this is a book for children and sometimes you need kind of something a little mm-hmm. a little bit bombastic like that in there to kind of appeal um i i wish it hadn't been that particular sentence hadn't been in there because the rest of it is done so well but um yeah it is really interesting how tiffany uh wrestles with this the whole way through and like the specific memory she thinks of and how they feed into the kind of person she becomes like the shepherdess is the highlight for me um but there's also that moment where the um oh what was it the the guy who's whipping his horse mm-hmm. and the horse is like exhausted and like half dead and granny Aiken comes in and she tells him you know she sits six her dogs on him basically but like tells him to or you know insinuates they should stop just before like actually attacking him and say oh you should stop beating that horse you know clearly it's like you know quite tired and it's just a nice example of granny Aiken stepping in uh, and speaking for someone who couldn't speak and you know it's i think that comes just before the end so it's a nice moment for tiffany to remember that to kind of think yes this is my responsibility now i have to help the people who can't speak for themselves and we see the um follow-on from that in the scene with roland how she's saying like you know if you become uh the the next um uh, baron duke baron Baron, yes, sorry, Baron. If you become the next Baron, then you're going to treat people well and make sure, you know, this kind of thing never happens again. It's just that synced up quite nicely. It's one of the few moments I felt was worked really well. Again, the rest of it, the moments that she remembers are quite nice, but I feel like they're all mixed up and jumbled up in a weird way. So a little rough around the edges. But yeah, no, overall, it's a very interesting, nuanced study of grief that I would have liked more of a focus on. It's actually, ironically, I think I would have preferred this to take the approach that Nightwatch took to stop trying to go for so many cheap laughs and just like focus on the themes because they're they're interesting. So I kind of wish he'd had a bit more confidence to do that in this one. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, again, I think the fact that it's a, a young adult book is sort of like, like the presence of the Fiegel are really like relief uh, so often, you know. 
Um, I think mm. perhaps he's thinking like, yeah, I got this book all about grief and child abduction. <laughs> that right <laughs> for kids. <laughs> um, uh, that that story actually on the child abduction line of Miss Female Robinson, the the maid who oh, like, yeah. was born in a workhouse who ends up stealing uh, a baby. Um, mm. And the way I really like that, like it, it's it's really kind of like it's very chilling and sort of talks about the how justice would work in these small communities. Um, you know, everyone's uncomfortable at having to punish her, but they kind of feel like they sort of have to anyway. Um, mm. And I, I like I like the detail of kind of getting that child's eye view of things, like Tiffany remembering how hearing people whispering saying, oh, and the house is full of babies' things, in the same way that they'd say the house is full, full of skulls, and her not really yeah. knowing why that was so significant. Um Mm. Yeah, I like them. My my one thing is, and it is, it, it's again coloured by the fact that we're getting this child's eye view of a grandparent, a loved one that that you know she's lost it. So with the granny aching, obviously, I mean she occupies this kind of like awe-inspiring place within the local community anyway, but particularly for Tiffany. Um, and as a consequence, then that means we do get sort of a, I suppose a a kind of very like straightforwardly positive view of her. You know what I mean? Um, mm. Like, we, we see all these moments, Tiffany remembering, like, as you say, her personal relationship, Tiffany's very well done in that way. It isn't, like, the only one who understood me. Of Like, it's a lot of, kind of, like, silences that could be awkward, but learning how to appreciate them. And I loved all that, but, but in terms of Granny's role in the community, I suppose, uh, we, we never see her, kind of, doing wrong or doing anything questionable, you know, in a way that mm. even, like, and this is probably an unfair comparison, because we get whole books with Granny Weatherwax and Annie Og, but we see them second guest in a way that we don't see Granny Aiken second guest here. And part of that is just the mm. fact that we're only getting her through the eyes of her granddaughter remembering these things. Yeah. But it does mean that she kind of, I suppose, seems a bit of a, I don't know, more of a, like a paragon of virtue than she probably was or should be given what the kind of uh, witches practice rights and the kind of thing Tiffany's aspiring to. Um, so yeah, as you said, like this is something that... Um like n- neither of us have read the entire Tiffany Aching saga, which goes on for five books. So we can't really comment on, you know, how things are going to progress and like how much her depiction here was like considered or like how, how much of the future books uh, Terry Pratchett had in mind while he was writing this. So this might all come together in a way that feels that, that fits together very nicely and uh, snugly. Um, it'll be interesting to see in the context of all of them when we're finished uh the main takeaway i have from this book like if we're to sum it up is that like almost all of terry pratchett's books there are all he always he almost always inevitably explores nice ideas i don't think there's any book there might be like a handful like two or three where the ideas explored are very you know oh this has been covered before this isn't very original whatever uh this one it's no exception like it, it studies very interesting themes and the idea of grief is something I hadn't even really thought of, and I have to say it is done quite well, better than I had originally thought. The main issue I have with it, though, is that despite the fact that it has good themes, it isn't brought together as well as I think it could be, and that's what makes it fall apart. I feel like there's a really, really, really good book in here. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, it's just not being served up to us in like the manner that we, we've come to expect. So, you know, for it falls short for me in that sense. I... I wish it was better. I really, really wish it was better. But for me, it just didn't didn't grab, didn't grip. 
sorry, what did you think of the um, uh, Granny and Nanny cameo at the end? Uh, that's, I felt that was very fanboyish. Like, that was very fa- fan-baiting. Like, I mm-hmm. think it could have done without it, if I'm being honest. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm not, because I'm a fan, obviously when I read it, I was like, oh, goody. But then when I'm actually, re- when I thought about it in the end, I was like, ah, I, I feel like you, you were kind of just like, we, he wanted a big finale. And I was like, I know what people like. People like this character. Let's bring him in for a bit. And like, parts of it work. Like, as you said, I like how um, uh, Granny Weatherwax has her little interaction with her and like, you know, they have banter and it works. But um, as I, I, I don't know, it, it felt very just like fan pleasing, you know, like uh, I, I, I felt like it could have been approached in a different way. I, I don't think Danny Og needed to be there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it. W- I actually think it would have benefited if they were going to do it. They could have just done it with just Granny Weatherwax. Um, I kind of even think it would have been nicer if it had just been Mystic, uh, Miss Mystic, yeah, come in and like if she had this exposition bit at the end and explore that relationship a little bit better because I feel like her character is it could be explored a little bit more. I, I have it written down here somewhere that Mystic is basically diet Granny Weatherwax. <laughs> um, so like. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind exploring her character a bit more. Yeah, as you said, um, the relationship between Mystic and Granny Weatherwax kind of explores her a bit more because she's not quite as clever or as authoritative as we originally think, and that's nice. But I feel like that could have been done in a better way somehow towards the end without bringing in uh, Granny Weatherwax and Annie Og. Yeah, I'm I'm up and down on it. I think, like, on the one hand, I, I do see what you mean about being, feeling quite, uh, you know... Uh, like a kind of fan pleasing moment um mm. and and granny and nanny perhaps because we just see them for this brief bit and from someone else's point of view do feel a little more like caricatures of themselves than the fully formed versions we're used to and perhaps that's yeah. part of a consequence of like at this stage let's see now where um like the last book they were in was uh carpe juggalum which is book mm. number 23 we're on 30 now i think there's about like at least a decade into difference, so he's a while off writing them, and maybe that hurts. Uh, but I do think one thing it does is, given that what I was saying earlier of like this is sort of taking a journey like esques, but playing it out over several books, where we're going to see kind of go into the nuances of Tiffany's growth into this role as a witch. It's a nice way to end it of broadening that world, like that she began with witches just being a storybook thing, where you know like that mm. that led to this poor old woman being killed. She briefly meets Miss Tick, who alludes to that world being bigger. So it's kind of nice that, and and this the way this ends, you know, I think even if you're reading it when on release, you'd know there's another Tiffany one coming from the way it ends. Mm. Uh, and it's a nice way to end up by kind of broadening that world and be like, yeah, there are other, you know, other witches, and that they're very different people than someone like Miss Tick. Like it isn't a kind of, or even Granny Aiken for that matter. It isn't a sort of one size fits all thing. Um, so it sets up perhaps a sense of anticipation of Tiffany seeing more of that world. You know, they talk about getting her to go work mm. for a, a witch at a, a later date, which I assume happens in, in one of the, the later books. So, yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's it's a nice way of broadening it out at the end in a way that, like, if you hadn't read the other ones and you're not conscious, oh, these are fan favorite characters returning, maybe you're just like, oh, cool, new new witches. Like, we see more of these. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I do think it is rendered a little awkward by how, how they come across to repeat readers. Like, they come across as sort of, yeah, not quite as filled out as they normally do, Granny and Nanny. 
this is it this is why i think that we're kind of judging two books here like depending on like whether or not you've read all the other ones mm-hmm. so it does as you said like i'm also quite up and down on it like my gut reaction is oh fan baiting whatever but when i actually read it it's like yeah it does serve the story so i'll give it that i kind of at that point i was kind of reminded of um <laughs> and maybe it's because of the fact that uh tiffany keeps saying oh so where's the witch's school where's that I kind of found myself thinking of um, the Harry Potter series and also, do you know the, the new ones, the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Yeah, That's yeah. how I kind of see the Tiffany Aching books. Like, it's kind of like a follow-on from a very popular series that inevitably is going to be compared to it and impossible to be, like, as favourable because, like, I understand that you associate it with the original because that's what's going to sell it. But I would have really liked it if you just tried to be your own thing and separate. Like, if you just divided it it would have been i think i would have enjoyed it more so yeah well look, this I, is a book i i see our point but i think it's a harsh comparison because whatever we think about the simplicity of the structure here that the teams don't come together unlike fantastic beast it has a plot like so. yeah don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong i know i know what you mean in general terms of like it's like it's the idea is is that it's gonna kind of take some of the the interest and color of this original series, but in fact it just comes across worse in, in comparison. Um, interestingly, mm. like uh, Pratchett said, he was drawn more from Jill Murphy's Worst Witch books, which I remember reading when I was very young with the whole like school for witches thing. But the mm. Harry Potter comparison's got to be in a lot of people's heads, and it is an interesting one where like Hogwarts is such a kind of regimented, structured school, like it's modeled off these like British, you know, like boarding schools. Uh, and that whole mm. genre of school days literature going back to Victorian times and the contrast with the witches school that is just the whole world and it's really unstructured yeah. um, is nice. And I like too that like by the time we get to the end of it, Tiffany, uh, it's it's not structured as a reveal. Tiffany knows what we all know at this point. Okay, yeah, I get it. The whole world is the school. That's the, you know, yeah. metaphor. And we don't have any moment where she on page says like, I get it now. It's like by the time she says that she's already realized that and we have as well. So yeah, it it is like an interesting comparison. It kind of brings it back to equal rights again, actually. Like how, you know, the way Granny Weatherwax was trying to train Esk initially up to be uh, a witch instead of a wizard. Mm-hmm. But ultimately she discovers that there's two very, very different kinds of magic. And I feel like this there's kind of a similar kind of uh, comparison being made here. And it is, like like you said, like, yeah, it, it's it's there. And a little bit of a sly dig, Um it's and it's 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 nice that it's there, but it's also <laughs> it kind of says a lot in that um, the main thing that uh, Tiffany is, has realized is like the witch school is everywhere. It's less structured. It's a bit all over the place. And I'm like, yep, that kind of seems like <laughs> that coincides with the plot of this book, all right. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm interested to see how it progresses. Is the thing like it's very difficult to judge this on its own merit. Like, this is one of the most difficult books to really, say, give a definitive viewpoint on it because there's a lot of um, things to take into account, like how it's going to progress and also whether to take it in the context of the rest of the series. Um, if Should we be reading it as adults or should we be reading it as children? Because, you know, it is a more simplistic plot and I kind of, part of me thinks that I should be a bit more lenient because it is aimed at children. So I'm like yeah but yeah i mean i've read a lot of children's books like or young adult books that they didn't you know that that were still seemed like more complex and i never thought that this was too simplistic and if i thought about this one you know if it sticks out to me maybe it's still worth complaining about mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. but uh yeah that's that's kind of my take um 
do you have is there anything else that you have to mention I think um, um, yeah I, I just have some short notes to hit on before we, we wrap up uh, one is I, I just have one thing it's a pity we don't see more of Fionn uh, the kind of, like uh, yeah although it's hard to see where she'd fit in like unless she's just kind of there with the Beagle kind of like undermining Tiffany Trout and making a bid for Kelda which would probably make her a much more unsympathetic character than she is anyway. Uh, but just mm. like that initial, uh, I suppose, like contrast between like it's a book about responsibility in a lot of ways and her uh, suspicion of Tiffany is that like, oh, she's this outsider. It's just almost this like gimmick for her to be Kelda. She's not going to appreciate it. So um, like perhaps having her there would have helped underline Tiffany's journey to you know, like being a good, responsible uh, Kelda that like uh, marshals the, the wild energies of the Fiegel in a positive direction, you know, uh, rather than just letting mm. them do whatever they want. Um, the other one is, I, I, I like the, the Gonegal stuff, which I'd always heard of, of William McGonagall as a legendarily bad poet. So I, I knew, yeah. I got the joke of like, oh, you know, and so it's like bad poetry has become weaponized, right? But then <laughs> I, I looked up some of his poetry uh, to see, like, okay, how bad is this really? Um, and I'll, I'll give you a blast of it here. This is actually from uh, the, a quote of it from the folklore of this world, which I believe you got. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. So this is a poem he wrote. He's a Victorian poet, William McGonagall, born 1825, for anyone who doesn't know. And this is a poem he wrote to commemorate, like, a kind of lament of the collapse of a railway bridge. Uh Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that many lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Oh, ill-fated bridge of the Silvery Tay, I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly, without the least dismay, that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses. At least many sensible men confesses. Buttresses. <laughs> For the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we do have of being killed. Oh my god. That is absolutely Spectacular, awful. <laughs> does he not know what metaphors are? <laughs> or like similes or anything? Oh my god, it's spectacularly bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, while we're on the, uh, the uh, we had the Harry Potter comparison. It's also apparently where J.K. Rowling got uh, Professor McGonagall's name was uh, from really? the man. Yeah, and she, I think she said, "Oh, I just love the idea that such a like a serious kind of you know uh, intelligent character would have like someone like that in their ancestry somewhere." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, I do, I do. Just to bring it back to Fionn for a second, just as I want to say, like, I do definitely agree with you that. She because she's in it so briefly, she's kind of she basically has that one chapter to shine really, mm-hmm. or two maybe where like they go under the hill and the bit where Tiffany is selected as Kelda, and she's characterized so well that you feel like she really should be in it more. But essentially, she's just like a one-off character who's barely in it at all. And yeah, so it is a shame that this is one of the times where he gets a character really, really right and then she's just not really in it again. But as you said, I can't really think of anything that she'd really have to do that wouldn't sully the story a little bit. So, yeah, that's a bit of a shame, but I suppose it can't really be helps. Yeah. Um, um, oh, I have one more note, and this probably isn't going to make you like this book any better. Do you know what's really <laughs> notable about it in the overall canon of the Discworld? It's done something that, like, literally... 
it, what's notable about it in the overall canon of the Discworld, it's done something that literally no other book we've covered up until this point has done. What's that? Death isn't in it. <gasps> You're right, he isn't. Actually, to be fair, that's probably a good thing. Because considering this is a book about grief, and it is exploring like a very difficult theme, I actually think having death appear in it, the only time I could think it would have had him there would be maybe when they kill the old woman in the woods or like mm-hmm. granny aching and it's one of those moments where i think it would have trivialized it a little bit because death usually is there to lighten the tone yeah of it. yeah that's and true. this is one of the so this is one of those times i think that's probably a good decision to not have him there so um maybe they could have had it in when the knack mcfeagal some of them died but then that would have messed up their whole idea that they were dead the whole time <laughs> and going back to life so but then they could have had it in there. I don't know. It's It doesn't bother me too much um, because I can see his reasoning behind why he didn't have it in there. But, um, yeah, hey, what can you do? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, right. Well, that closes out my notes uh, in quicker time than usual, but it is one of the shorter books. Have you got anything else to add? No. Um, as you said, like it's short, and I didn't really feel like there was a lot to really dig our teeth into because the theme I mean I'm glad that we explored the theme of grief which is something I only kind of lightly thought about and yeah there's more to it than I actually originally thought so that's good but um yeah no that's pretty much all I have so uh let's get to ranking this I suppose one one quick thing before we do we're recording this on uh, November 2nd um no wait Halloween was November 3rd. Uh, there's a date in the corner of my computer that I wasn't looking at while I'd done that very poor bit of mathematics. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so I, I, I just, I, I, we didn't get any questions pertinent to this episode, but I did ask our listeners, what's the scariest moment in this world? Um, oh, yeah. So, bet a pumpkin has anguaji. I'm not quite sure. It's like, it feels like a matchup between angua and jumanji. But uh, she says there was a very real threat in Carpe Gaelum that Granny might not make it for me. Uh, a ah, chew and yeah. sneezed at Dame the Log says Vimes coming back from the past and uh, not knowing if Carcer got there first. First time I read those scenes, I was white knuckled, uh, and mm. they had some agreement on that. And uh, lastly, Elena Mitchell at She Jedi said uh, probably not so scary so much as horrifying but the disorganizer and jingo listing off the deaths of each of my favorites as the trousers of time converge and we know the results of the path that vimes didn't take uh yeah which are all like really good suggestions i don't think like like pratchett's uh thought of in terms of scary moments or you know in, in terms of his horror content but he certainly got some that uh yeah, tighten the stomach muscles and send chills up the spine. What about you? For you, what's what's the, the scary standout scary bits of this world? Uh, for me, it was um, that's pretty easy. I still remember, and we discussed this like a few podcasts ago. Pretty much the entire bit in the amazing Morris and his educated rodents when they go underground and they discover all these, uh, you know, terrified rats who have lost mm-hmm. the, or like the rats who have lost the ability to speak, and the build up to Spider. The, the Rat King, I remember reading that and thinking, this is really, really, like, blood-chilling stuff. Like, um, I the, the rest of the book, um, 
the Discworld books, they never really struck me as some being particularly scary. They were always like lightened at the appropriate times. But that was one of the few po- points where I thought, wow, this is really dark, which is why I found it so funny because it's the first young adult book. And that was probably for me the scariest <laughs> one. Um, what about you? Was there any that you found particularly um, scary? I, I think I think it's in, in Tud with this, all the stuff underground, you know, when they find the uh, the dwarves who are trapped underground and were trying to scrabble their way out, and like drew a kind of drew the symbol of the, the summoning dark. Uh, I think all of mm. that stuff is just so atmospheric. I find it very chilling, and I'm someone who actually likes small dark spaces, but uh, that seemed to, to do it for me. <laughs> Uh, the the stuff in Hogfather and the the Two Faced Tower is more probably creepy, but I think really effectively done with with the sort yeah, of visions of childhood terrors haunting Tiatime's gang. Definitely, definitely creepy. All right, yeah. <laughs> and I, I've said before on on this that the first uh, Discworld I, I encountered was um, listening to the audio of Life Fantastic, and I remember like when I was young listening to it the part at the end when. Uh, Tony Robinson, the narrator, is describing Trimon's eyes when he uh, he has all of the things from the dungeon dimension in his head. Like I just found really oh, yeah. chilling, um, and yeah, kind of spookily evocative. Um, mm, yeah, so I thought, given the given the week that's in it, that one was that was a, a, an avenue worth exploring. But well, yeah, yeah, there are so, there definitely are some like very interesting bits that. Had, um, it's 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 strange how bits that you wouldn't normally consider to be quite scary, but like descriptions can be quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the way uh, people describe Vorbis's eyes. In it's it's interesting actually the way people describe people's eyes is actually one of the most yeah. consistently unsettling bits in uh, Terry Pratchett's books. But I remember Vorbis's eyes were sounded really terrifying because they're almost pitch black, uh, which is just that's that's so creepy. <laughs> Um, even in the last one in Nightwatch, remember we were talking about the entire interrogation yeah, uh, yeah. section. That I mean, that's more horror again, more horrifying than like scary, but it is properly horrifying. Like the bit where they find the tooth that you brought up the last time. Mm-hmm. That's that's a very horrifying moment. Um, yeah, yeah. But for me, it, it's going to be amazing, Marisa. It's weird that I really think it's weird that the one that I would consider almost to be a horror is the first young adult one. That's so <laughs> odd to me. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if you should ever have children or not. <laughs> Maybe for many <laughs> reasons. Um, right, so uh, well, I'll get to ranking this this fella. Um, this this is a a tough one to to begin with. So, I mean, what's our yeah. what's our point of comparison here? Do we go with like witches stuff? Um, uh, because the f- of the the first thing that's jumped. The first thing that's jumping out to me, if you don't mind me saying, is um, I'm just looking at the amazing uh, Morris and his educated rodents as the last young adult one. I definitely think this is a worse, bu- worse book than that. So I definitely think it should be below that. Um, um, what do you think? Hmm. For me, I, I would probably... I, I don't know... Uh, Maybe it's recency bias. I would have it above it, but I don't feel ultra strongly on that. So, um, you know, I'm I'm happy to kind of uh, see it to you here. Um, hmm. to, like I'm 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 seeing it kind of I'm I'm just seeing it below the the witches one, and I'm wondering what like you know whether it, 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 I don't know like Amazing Mars is nineteen, Tifa Times twenty. Uh, would it be like? What would you think of new number twenty below Amazing Morris above FIFA Time? Um, FIFA Time or this? Um, 
Yeah, I, f- I, f- it, I feel like a lot of the problems we had with Thief of Time crop up as in this one as well. In that, like, the narrative is so messy and, like, the a lot of the characters, for me at least, uh, aren't developed in a way... Like, I remember the way we're supposed to feel about Tiffany is very uh, synchronous... Uh, it syncs up quite well with um, the main character in Thief of Time. I forget his name now at the moment. The guy who ultimately turns out to be Time. Lobsang. Yeah, Lobsang, who, like, we're kind of told is this kind of rascal person, but, like, he's got no personality to speak of, really. See, see I would so... disagree with you there, and that would be the deciding factor for me, in that, like, Tiffany has much more well-drawn personality than Lobsang. T- and, and, and I know Tiffany what you mean about, about her kind of, like, that we have, have her laddered up with praise at the start, and in a way that similarly annoyed us with uh, Lucy. But I feel it's less glaring here because it's only coming from one character in Miss Tick. And even if it is a bit mm. much, I think that's more bearable than having like everyone in the monastery fawn over Lucy to get us kind of geared up to meet him. Um, mm. So, like, like the, the, I, I know what you mean. It's similar uh, points up maybe a kind of messiness of, of, of team um, in both of them. But, uh, like, for me, the, the characters would uh, have, this, have this above Thief of Time. Um, well, I mean, yeah, no, don't get me wrong. I do think, like, Tiffany herself is, like, re... I feel like the foreshadowing at the start rubbed me up the wrong way, but she does eventually earn, like, uh, that justification at the very end, but only just. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the rest... A lot of the other characters, I feel like, are very... Not not necessarily bad, but thinly drawn. I feel like we're kind of told more than... Exp- like, we're told their characters more than explored properly. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've... I think Roland's quite well done, given that we don't see a whole lot Ro- of him. In that, like, he's sort yeah. of well-meaning, but can never get past that initial haughtiness um, he has. You know, like, I, I like that, like, even as an arc he has as a character where he's apologizing to Tiffany at the end, you know, for sort of taking the credit. And you kind of get the sense of, like, he didn't lie to the Baron or something and say, oh, yeah, it was me. But also, like, part of him is kind of, like, pleased and excited about his dad thinking well of him so he even though he's guilty that he's taking the credit for tiffany's thing you get a sense of like he doesn't want the truth to come out but despite mm. being uh, mature enough to apologize he's still you know trying to boss around um like uh, yeah, i think I... that the fiegel are good in the sense of like being uh comic relief which is what they're there for and i, I suppose what makes the difference here is that like while here like the book's really all about tiffany you know and I don't expect her to be that much characterization of the others. In fact, we get a pretty good characterization of, of Granny Aching. Um, whereas Thief of Time takes a lot of different strands. You know, it's, it, you, you'd struggle to even point to a main character there. Is it Susan? Is it Lobsang? Is it Jeremy Coxon? Um, so it mm. feels more glaring to me that some of the characters, most notably Jeremy, or not Jeremy, sorry, Lobsang and uh, Lucy, like either great or feel underdrawn when they're asked to carry more of the plot done the side characters are here in We Free Men where it's Tiffany that's carrying the bulk of the action so we kind of we don't need anyone to be as well characterised as she is well yeah I mean I mean fair enough like with Thief of Time like it's got it's a much bigger book like and it's more complex and for that reason I think the characters that like aren't particularly well drawn uh, well drawn or characterised um, it's more apparent for this book in particular, because like it's so small and so much of the focus is on Tiffany rather than them, you can forgive them for being quite shallow. 
Um, mm-hmm. I this is this is my personal point of view. I I consider him to be like shallow, but so like I mean, which isn't the same as bad. Like you said, I think uh, Roland is done quite well, but he's also a, not necessarily one note. I don't. He's he's just fine. There's nothing about him that like brings me back to him and say, oh, he's a good character. He's just functional. Um, but but do any of them have to be more than functional? I mean, who else are you seeing is undercharacterized here? Well, I I me I disagree with you on Mystic. I don't think she's well characterized at all. I still think that she's. But she's only in three very, scenes. Yeah, but like it feels like she like she kind of uh, hovers over the story a little bit because Tiffany kind of comes back to her every now and then. Well, she thinks of her, but like, even so, I mean, I, I feel like part of her role is not to be the mentor she's initially set up to be. I agree with you that her, like, her characterization does seem a bit, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange kind of jump when she goes from being uh, limited but competent to kind of being very much the... Uh, seeming in, incompetent compared to granny and nanny but i sort of feel again like that she's like a like set up like a a false mentor in the way you know like you described her as mm-hmm. diet granny weatherwax and i i wouldn't agree at all because i don't think i i think the only comparison with granny weatherwax is that like initially maybe we get sense of like oh she's a witch like like if we're reading this book for the first time having read the others we will think she's a witch like granny so she's going to know what to do but in terms of personality i don't think she's really supposed to be like her in any way you know she's more kind of fussy mm. and by the book than granny is mm. I, I, listen i agree to disagree i personally don't see it that way but i mean it's not so much the characters that it's more like the actual narrative that like i take issue with so, like, you know, whereas Thief of Time was one of the ones that we actually described as quite epic. We really enjoyed uh, the the apocalypse uh, bit in Thief of Time, that it actually felt quite epic. Mm-hmm. Yes, a lot of the characters were kind of thinly drawn, but, you know, there, it, we, re- we really enjoyed where, um, you know, Susan and Jeremy Clarkson and Time and everyone was taking on the the auditors that was a really really enjoyable like final act it like felt really properly blood pumping compared to this where you know the neck mcfeagal and tiffany and roland are muddling around dream after dream after dream and then a real deus ex machina concludes the whole thing i feel that's very sloppy and i personally put this below thief of time because of that um i'm kind of iffy on this i've got a little bit of leeway i'm kind of 60% 60% maybe 70 would like to go below but I could be swayed hello hey can hello? you hear me can you hear me hey hey can you hear me yeah got you there now hello Steve hello hello yeah can you hear me is your yeah, refrigerator you running? Shh. Well, you better go uh, after it. <laughs> well, my punchline. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I don't know whether it's the network on my end or your end. I suspect it might be mine because my internet's been, been playing up lately, but it just dropped out there. Um, so if, if you kept um, on speaking, we've got, we've got it recorded. But for the sake of, I suppose, like uh, getting, getting whatever point it was across to me, do you want to just... Uh, to tell me whatever it was you were saying and, and we'll, we'll wrap it up yeah okay so uh when we were talking about thief of time uh we both really enjoyed the apocalypse angle when mm-hmm. we were saying this is one of the first books that felt properly epic 
in its execution. Um, the entire uh, third act where Susan and Time and everyone are taking on the auditors with the chocolate uh, is really, really enjoyable. It's a great third act and it all kind of comes together in a really fun and exciting way. Compare that to this book where we're going through dream after dream after dream and like a lot of them seem very interchangeable and it ultimately concludes in a deus ex machina that feels a little unsatisfying. Um, I, for me, that would put this below Thief of Time uh, for me. Uh, I'm feeling, I wouldn't say like extremely strongly on it because... I mean, these these ones are quite low down. I'd say I'm about sixty, maybe seventy percent pushing it, but I could be swayed to put it above. It's not a huge deal, but I don't know. Maybe if I've swayed you a little bit. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot wrong with Teeth of Time, but uh, there's a lot right with it as well. Uh, and maybe I'm just conscious of the fact that while I like this one a lot better. There's more Tiffany ones coming ahead, so like I, I suppose I don't feel as um, bad about potentially putting this one relatively low because who knows where the other ones might figure. So mm. new number twenty one then below Tifa Time above Jingo. Uh, actually, let me just think about. I'm trying to remember the issues we had with Jingo now. Actually, because uh, I remember I, I remember quite liking Jingo um, as well. I'm, I'm looking at I think, interesting yeah, I, I think I, I think Jingo's Jingo's like has strong points and uh, it's comedy is one of them. It's really funny, but I think it's a complete mess plot wise. Um, in terms of like yeah, there's these weird shortcuts he takes where Vimes just suddenly knows things like like without us seeing his thought process of how he got there, you know. And there's great moments yeah. of like one of our listeners mentioned the the disorganizer, but there is this sense of it feeling like a um like a kind of misstep or like an odds and sods collection of the watch compared with the books that precede it and uh, follow it in that series. Whereas I feel like if nothing else here, he's, you know, trying, well, he's taking old things to try something new, you know, and uh, mm. there's more of a sense of direction in it. Like, you know, we kind of end with this, um, Tiffany having begun her witch's uh, training and at a very different place than she is at the start of the book, kind of setting us up for the next one. Whereas Jingo, like we often said, you could kind of remove it from the watch, the the canon from the watch series, and it, it wouldn't really make a difference to any of the characters for all like That's the true. strength of some of the some of its kind of individual moments in it. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, yeah, having that exact that reaction, I think. Uh, what it boils down to for me when it, if we're comparing Jingo and this book is whereas I enjoyed uh, reading Jingo more than I enjoyed reading this but I do have to admit this is in some ways a more ambitious book uh, he's trying new things going in a new direction and yeah it, it is just generally more ambitious like Jing, Jingo is more of a greatest hits as he said which is fine but um, yeah I'd, I'd be happy enough to put this at 21 then okay uh, so the Wii Free Men, new number 21, above Jingo, below Thief of Time. Um, so, uh, that concludes our episode for today. If you guys want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at Radio Moorpark. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Radio Moorpark. You can email us, radiomoorpark at gmail.com. You can go to our website, uh, radiomoorpark.wordpress.com. Um, and you can obviously find our episodes uh, on SoundCloud, um, Apple Podcasts. 
uh, podcast addict, all those kind of things. Uh, you want to leave us a review? That's always nice. It helps uh, spread the good word of what we're doing. If you want to kind of get in touch with us with any uh, feedback, any constructive criticism, any just you just want to have a chat about the Discord, we're always up for that. Um, so until next time, where we'll tackle Monstrous Regiment next time, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. happy Which days. Is one I'm, forward I'm to that. Curious to go back to. I've only read it the once before, years. Me too. Like, uh, yeah, I think soon after it came out, and I remember kind of being lukewarm on it. And I wonder was that like were there bits that were going over my head then that I'll catch now or. Yeah, I'm curious to revisit it in any case. Um, but yeah, we will... We're kind of getting to that stage now where, um, whereas before, I think we'd read most of the books maybe, well, I don't know about you, but I kind of read them like two times or maybe even three times because they've been out for so long. But now we're getting to the point where uh, I only read these books like just the once because it was relatively recently and then I moved on. So yeah, everything after this point, I've only read the once. So that'll, it'll be interesting to come back to. I remember thinking it was okay, actually. Uh, Monsters Regiment. I thought it was mm-hmm. it was fine. I just remember thinking when I when I read Monsters Regiment, I thought it, it was fine. Like it didn't stand out, but by the same token, I didn't think it was bad either. So we'll see, I suppose, when we get to it next week. Yeah. Or well, I mean, we're, we're just talking about Jingo. It's like he kind of he's revisiting an idea with Jingo and Monsters Regiment by doing a war book. But uh, so we'll see what he mm. bring uh, what new things he can bring to the table. Uh, in the meantime, yeah. listeners, goodbye. Ooh.